Second Kings chapter 1. We're starting a, our next book going through the Old Testament tonight. And remember, First Kings and Second Kings are originally one book, so there's not a different theme or purpose for Second Kings. However, it, it's probably a good time to revisit what those themes and purposes are as we're trying to paint the big picture as we dive in. It is tempting to approach Second Kings as just a history book. Sometimes we can read our Bible that way. But Jesus described the Old Testament by dividing it into three sections, the Torah, the law, the prophets, and then the writings, mostly the poetic works. Luke chapter 24, 44, Jesus says that. Well, Second Kings is not the law, and it's not poetry, it's not the writings. It's counted as part of the prophets. It isn't in the Bible, a part of our Bible, just to record history, but rather to teach the lessons of history. And so because of this, as we read through 2 Kings, we're going to see the author say from time to time, if you want to learn more about this king or the events that occurred during his reign, go read this other book. But he's selecting the specific events that he picks. He shares them because what he writes about is designed to teach those who read it something specific. Which means as we're studying through 2 Kings, we must always remember the author's audience. Remember, he's writing to the Jews who are in exile in Babylon. They've been taken out of their homeland, Judea's been conquered, and they're living under Babylonian rule in a foreign country. And during that time, they were asking some heavy questions, questions that we sometimes ask when disaster strikes our lives. Did God break His promise to us? Was God unable to keep His promise to us? Does God still love us? And where do we go from here? Well, the author, when he writes this book of Kings, First and Second Kings, he is selecting events from their history which show that God did keep His promises even when He judged them because the judgment was orchestrated by Him when they were unfaithful to their promise. The author also selects events from their history that shows the people that God still loves His people and that God still has a plan for His people. And therefore, all they must do to experience His forgiveness and His blessings is to turn back to Him which makes Second Kings a wonderful book for us to study. Because while we have a better covenant that is based on Jesus' faithfulness instead of our faithfulness, Second Kings still serves as a, a good warning of the consequences of disobedience and a good reminder of the blessings that come from trusting the Lord. Second Kings reminds us that God will keep His promises even when we fail to keep our promises. And Second Kings reminds us that there is hope when we have experienced discipline that all we need to do is turn our hearts back to Him. So, with that in mind, let's go ahead and dive in. Now, context, remember, when it was originally written, there's no break. So, this follows right upon chapter 22 of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 22 ended with the death of Ahab. 2 Kings now begins with Ahab's son Ahaziah on the throne and the crisis that he experienced during his short reign. First Kings already told us that Ahaziah was a wicked king, but this evening we will see that how we perceive ourselves affects how we respond to God when He seeks to discipline us. So, chapter 1, verse 1, it says, Then Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab, and Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria, and he was sick. And he sent messengers and said unto them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of this disease. 
So, 1 Kings ends with telling us Ahaziah's a bad dude. He's not a good king, not a godly man. He's an idolater. And right from the get-go, here in chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, we see God's discipline upon this wicked king. During Ahaziah's reign, his very short reign, two disasters happened. Verse 1 tells us that Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, David conquered Moab during his reign. And when the kingdom split after Solomon died, when the kingdom split, the northern tribes oversaw the subjugation of Moab, and things remained in hand for around 130 years. But here we read that they rebelled. They revolted against Israeli rule. Now, that's a problem because the Moabites were fierce enemies of Israel who wanted to see Israel wiped out. In fact, we see a couple attempts at genocide during the period of Judges when they invade Israel and they seek to wipe them out. Them being a vassal of Israeli kings kept them from invading and killing Israelis. Moab being subjugated was seen as a sign of God's blessing on his people. Well, clearly that blessing is now removed. This is the first way that God disciplined Ahaziah in order to try to get his attention. Things are not good, Ahaziah. You're not doing things the right way. And so the Moabites rebel. The second thing is in verse 2. And Ahaziah, so in addition to this tragedy, this catastrophe, Ahaziah fell down through a lattice in his upper chamber that was in Samaria and was sick. If you go to Israel today, it's not super common, but you can still see in the high-rise buildings that every building has like, every apartment has like a roof. And very often you'll see people hanging out on the roof. It's just a, a Middle Eastern custom. Like, you won't come to my house and never see me just camping out on my roof. First off, it's not safe because it's not flat, but Israelis would see their roof almost as like we would consider a porch. They would consider it to be the upper room, an open, not a roofed area, an open area, but usually it would have some kind of a wall. And here we read that it was of this lattice work, which is basically wooden paneling. So, I mean, he's up on the roof, he's hanging out in the, of his palace, and he's probably checking things out near the lattice. And I don't know if he put his hand on something, whatever happened, it breaks and he falls through it all the way to however far down the palace went. And it says that he was sick, which is he didn't get sick from it. it means, the word means he was wounded or injured. And you say, well, how is that God trying to get his attention? Let me ask you something. Have you ever experienced a situation where if you were, if you were somewhere just a second earlier or just a minute or two later, a catastrophe would have occurred? I've had so many situations in my life like that to think it's just random chance. Or if it was just a second earlier or like a minute or two later, whatever, it had been, things have been bad. When God is trying to get my attention, but I won't listen, sometimes God removes his hand of protection from those disasters. Sometimes he tells the angels, he says, listen, remove the blessing, remove the protection. It's not working. I need to get his attention. And I think that's the case with Ahaziah here. Normally, maybe, you know, you put your hand in a different spot and it doesn't, you don't break it or whatever happened. But this time he falls through the framework and he topples off the roof of the palace, resulting in serious injury. But instead of repenting or seeking the Lord, he stubbornly turns to pagan gods. Look at what he does. He sent messengers and said unto them, Go, inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover of these injuries, this disease, it says. But he didn't have a disease, he had injuries. 
whether I'll be alive or these, these injuries are going to kill me. Now, Beelzebub was not an actual god, okay? Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. There was nobody that named their god Lord of the Flies, all right? That's an Israeli insult, all right? It was like the, uh, Baal, there's another word like Zebul or Zemul for Lord. Baal is the Lord was the real name. But they would be like, oh, you worship, ba- how do you say it? Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. The only thing your God can do, he's so unimportant, is that he can take care of flies. It's not exactly an illustrious title. But that's how far Ahaziah is from the Lord. Ask the God who's only powerful enough to be in charge of flies. The word idol in Hebrew, it means a vain thing or an empty thing. Things that don't exist are vain and empty, unable to help you because they're not real, and therefore, they're unworthy of our trust. And so, I ask you a question, you know, how do you respond when catastrophe hits you? I think it's dangerous to always go to the fact, oh, God's judging me or God's disciplining me. But do you care if God maybe might be trying to get your attention? You know, do you at least consider that the reason this has happened is because God's trying to get your attention? And do you look to God for wisdom and help when He finally gets your attention? Do you cling to the Lord to see you through that catastrophe or that disaster? Well, because this doesn't get Ahaziah's attention, the Lord sends an angel to Elijah. Look at verse 3. But, so but's in contrast to what Ahaziah is doing. Clearly, God's trying to do something, but Ahaziah is not listening, so there needs to be a but God. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say unto them, Is it not because there is not a God in Israel that you go to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, but you shall surely die. And so Elijah departed. The Lord intervenes because he doesn't want this stubborn man to get a phony answer and think he can ignore God's warning shots. He doesn't want him to satisfy himself with whatever message the prophets or priests or whoever gives the message from Ekron, whatever phony message gets sent, him to go, oh, this is great. I'll be fine. I can just keep doing what I'm doing. God loves him enough that he wants Ahaziah to repent before it's too late. And so he sends an angel to Elijah with a message. Now, the last time we saw Elijah was when he told Ahab that all of his descendants would die violent deaths. Ahaziah is one of those descendants. And so God is now using that same prophet to confirm that word. And he asks, before he pronounces the judgment, he asks a question. God asks this man a question. Isn't that an interesting thought? God does ask us questions sometimes, not because he needs information, but he's trying to get our attention. Think about all the way back in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned, and the Lord says, where are you? It's not because God didn't know where they were. It was an opportunity to come out into the open. It was an opportunity to confess. It was an opportunity to repent. And so the question is designed to get Ahaziah's attention yet again. What a powerful question. Is Is it not because there's a God in Israel? That's why you have to go to this false god? What an important question. You know, there are many reasons you and I don't seek God when trouble comes into our lives, and it's never because He isn't there for me or doesn't love me. It's always because I don't trust Him. 
always. Either I don't believe that he loves me, or I don't believe that his way is best, or I don't believe that he has my good in mind, or I sadly don't want to do what he wants me to do, or I do want to do what I want to do, and I know he won't approve. Either way, whether it's self-sufficiency or rejection of God's sufficiency, it results in the same thing. I start looking for answers somewhere besides him. And it always makes things worse. And so in verse 4, he says, because you, you did this, now therefore, that's it, because you made this decision in your crises, because you did this, you're not going to recover, you're going to die. Now that's, that's heavy. Because it makes me ask the question, well, does that mean that God was willing and desiring to heal Ahaziah if he had turned to him? Because he says, now therefore... Or maybe even just at least let him survive? We won't know the answer to that question until we get to heaven. But God does make it clear that his decision to seek a false god is the end of the road. And you know what? This is God's last warning to the king. You're going to die from this injury. Make things right with me while you still draw breath. You're not getting better. And so we see here that even in judgment, God is merciful And you know, sometimes that's what it takes to bring a person to repentance. Can I plead with you tonight, though? Please don't be that person. Don't let it get to this point before you listen. What's sad is that Ahaziah didn't even ask his messengers to petition Beelzebub for healing. He didn't ask them for help, just information. The Lord offers so much more to us His heart is towards us, even when we're so far from Him. He wants to bless us, even though we will never deserve it. Do you believe that? Because it's true. Well, Elijah departed, and then his meeting with these messengers happens off screen, because the next thing that we read about in verse 5 is that they returned without fulfilling their mission. Look at verse 5. And when the messengers turned back unto him, the king, he, the king, said unto them, why are you now turned back? And they said unto him, there came a man up to meet us and said unto us, go, turn back, turn again, turn around, go back to the king that sent you and say unto him, thus says the Lord, is it not because there is no, is it because there is not a God in Israel that you send to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from that bed on which you are gone up, but you shall surely die. Notice the king's response. He said unto him, what manner of man was he that which came up to meet you and told you these words? What did he look like? And they answered him, well, he was a hairy man and girt with a girdle of leather about his loins. And he said, ah, it's Elijah the Tishbite. I don't know about you, but if somebody comes to me and says, you know, yeah, king, I know you sent us on this mission, and I'm the king, and they come back, I'm like, what are you doing back here? And I said, well, I met a dude. What do you mean you met a dude? I didn't tell you to meet a dude. Well, the dude told us that God had a message for you. I don't care what God thinks. But he's concerned because he wants to know who gave the message. And when he realizes who it is, we'll see in a second, he is livid. When these guys come back, these messengers, Ahaziah realizes they couldn't have traveled that quickly to Ekron and back. And so he asks them, what are you doing back here? And when they explain, he asks them, what manner of man? The word manner there means what custom or law 
did this man live by? The prophets had a peculiar way of doing life back then. You could usually spot one very easily. And then Elijah was even more eccentric than most of the prophets. He didn't wear all the traditional garb of someone who graduated from the school of prophets. He didn't have his little school of prophets sticker on. He was a mountain man with lots of hair and a simple outfit. But that made him stick out just as much as a prophet's normal clothing would. Ahaziah had likely seen Elijah meeting with his father, Ahab. At the very least, he had heard about Elijah from the higher-ups or even heard his dad talk about Elijah enough to recognize him. But instead of realizing the seriousness of the situation that caused Elijah to get involved, instead of realizing this is a big deal if Elijah's involved, he hardens his heart to the message and he sends a small army to arrest Elijah. Look at verse 9. Then the king sent unto him a captain of 50 with his 50, and he went up to him. Now, we're going to stop here because we need to move through this section slowly, otherwise we're going to miss the importance of it. The word here for captain, this is a highly trusted military official. A captain over 50 means he didn't just go grab 50 thugs or 50 random guys. This is a highly trained military unit led by a highly trusted military official. It would be like calling in a portion of the National Guard. Sir, we've got a problem. What's going on? We've got one man we need you to go arrest. Call in the National Guard. Why do this? Why have this reaction? I mean, it's not like you can't send the messengers back to Ekron. And if you're really mad at them, then find different messengers. And if you don't like what Elijah has to say, why not just ignore him and move on? That's a good question for our culture today. If you don't like what someone says, just ignore it and move on. The argument people make about that when you suggest that is that they will tell you, well, you saying what God says about right or wrong or you declaring God's Word is literally killing people. That's the phrase you're going to hear. You're literally killing people right now. That by not affirming who a person is and how they decide to live is hatred or bigotry. And therefore, you are causing people to be oppressed to the point of committing suicide. And you don't even have to say anything to be guilty. If you contribute financially to a church that teaches the Bible or attend a Bible study even, you're supporting the deaths of thousands. Now, I am not unsympathetic to those who struggle with depression, mental illness. I myself have battled depression, suicidal thoughts over the course of my life, my earlier life. I understand what that's like. And I don't just say those things, you know. I realize some people are like, oh, I'm depressed today. That's not what I'm talking about, all right? If I go to a doctor, they're going to want to put me on medication. So I, I am very sympathetic towards the struggles of those who have depression who struggle with suicidal thoughts, who are confused. I have sympathy for that. But critiquing someone's behavior today has become synonymous with hating who they are. Don't you you say, well, you're taking things way out of context here. Am I really, though? I, I know I'm not. Because what did Ahab say when Jehoshaphat said, do you have any more prophets here, any more prophets of the Lord? And he said, yeah, there's one Nor. His name's Micaiah, but I hate him because all he ever does is prophesy bad things about me. 
This is not new, new ideology, new struggles that a culture has. This is in the Bible. This is Ahaziah's problem with Elijah. I hate that guy because he hates me. I can't ever do anything right with this guy. He's constantly telling me everything I do is wrong. When we ask the question of why would you do this for some hairy dude up on a mountain? All by himself. Ignore him. Let him stay where he is. Go do your thing. Why is it so important to do something? The answer to the why, the question of why the king does this is found in who Ahaziah sees himself to be. He is the king of Israel. No one has the right to challenge my authority or my commands. I told these messengers to go consult Beelzebub, but Elijah has the audacity to tell them to disobey my commands and then come back and give me a whole different message because the Lord told him to? I tend to speak loudly. Your series are sensitive. You see, Ahaziah's problem, Ahab's problem, was that these two kings saw themselves as autonomous, self-governing. I have the right to govern myself. No one can tell me what to do, and no one better get in the way of what I want done. But autonomy is a fantasy. Because if you work that out to its logical conclusion, everyone can't have autonomy. How can any person, no matter how powerful, truly believe in autonomy when you tell someone else they can't be autonomous if their perception of themselves infringes on your perception of yourself? The argument, though, again, always goes to the same spot. Well, I have a justified basis that gives me the right to be autonomous and takes your right to be autonomous away. Therefore, you must surrender your autonomy to who I perceive myself to be. Now, that problem is solved when we recognize that none of us are autonomous. That there is one who does have autonomy and has the highest moral ground. And therefore, he is the only one who can be justified when he infringes on how we perceive ourselves. And that's the Lord. When I, instead of insisting on living based on who I perceive myself to be, choose to do what Jesus said, which is deny myself, take up my cross, and follow him each day, well, then guess what? I no longer have a problem when God sends a prophet to tell me to repent, right? That's no longer a problem. I no longer demand, well, you can't infringe upon who I perceive myself to be and how I want to live my life. I don't have a problem with that because I recognize I'm not self-governing. I have a creator. I don't have the highest moral ground. I have a sovereign king. I don't have all authority. Whatever I may be in this life, he's the king of kings. Recognizing that truth is the only way to correctly understand the rest of the events of this chapter. Because if we don't understand that, We're going to read through this, and we're going to see God and His prophet as harsh, unjust, or even wicked, which is the opposite of true. The pagans back then, they believed that magical curses could be nullified if the person who pronounced the curse was killed, or if they they retracted their statement. 
perhaps that's why the king wants him arrested. Maybe it's not just revenge. Maybe it's not just about putting Elijah in his place. Perhaps Ahaziah thinks if he can coerce through threatening and power Elijah to change his tune, or maybe even if he could execute Elijah, if he doesn't change his tune, that somehow that will undo the message from God. That's nonsense, of course, because Elijah is not the source of this message. The Lord is the source. And do you think any of us can ever coerce the Lord into changing his mind? It's not happening. And so before we get into the arrest attempt here and what happens afterwards, we should ask ourselves an important question. How do I perceive myself? Do I see myself as self-governing, autonomous, or do I see myself as subject to my Creator? Do I see myself as someone who can make others affirm my behavior, or do I see myself as someone willing to accept God's correction? Well, Ahaziah is not the only person with a problem denying himself. Look at verse 9. Then the king sent unto him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and the captain went up to him, Elijah. He, the captain, went up to him, Elijah. And behold, he, Elijah, sat on the top of a hill. And he, the captain, spoke unto him, Thou man of God, the king has said, Come down. Interesting. Thou man of God, he recognizes that. But then he gives the order. The king has said, Come down. Not Ahaziah the person but who Ahaziah perceived himself to be. The highest authority in the land commands you to come down. The word there has said, it's really interesting in the Hebrew. I'm not a big Hebrew expert, but this phrase here, has said, is not just he said the words. The word here is written in a tense that expresses the bringing about of a state. In other words, the king, he has changed things. The highest authority in the land, I know you said you had your instructions from God, but the king has changed the state of things. God's orders are subservient to the king's orders. And the king has spoken and brought about a new way you're to conduct yourself, Elijah. So you need to come with us. Now, kingship never worked that way in Israel. God was always Israel's king, and therefore the ultimate authority in the land. Even kings were supposed to bow the knee to God's words through his prophets. And this is not a new concept. It's all over the Torah. It's all over the law of Moses. God's people knew this is how it worked. No king was the highest authority in the land. We aren't, we aren't like the pagans. God is our ultimate authority. And therefore, his prophets have a right to speak into anyone's life, including the king of Israel. Which is why this captain and his men are just as guilty as Ahaziah. Everyone understood this. Ahaziah wasn't their highest authority. The Lord was to be their highest authority. And so the captain who speaks these words and these men who support him as he does so make the same decision that Ahaziah does. I have more authority than you, Elijah, because I come on the word of the king. You may come with the word of the Lord, but I come with the word of the king and I supersede you. You see, who I perceive myself to be gives me a higher authority than what the Lord has told you to do, Elijah. So you must come with me. You must come with us. I think we read this often and we think to ourselves this in a very impersonal way. Well, these guys are just following orders. I mean, 
They're nobodies. They're just following orders. They don't have a choice. But that's, that's where the lie lies. That's where you find the lie. There's always a choice, as we're going to see in these next few verses. God commands us to honor, give honor to governing authorities, to obey the laws that they put in place. But God also tells us that if those governing authorities ever tell us to disobey the Lord, we must refuse. If the governing authorities say, Will, you can't read your Bible anymore, the answer is, no, sir. I will be happy to abide by any laws you have that never cause me to infringe upon God's commands. Because you are not the highest authority for my life. You are an authority in my life, but you are not the highest authority in my life. We have examples of this. We read about it with the three friends of Daniel with the golden statue. Nebuchadnezzar says, you got to bow down to this. And they're like, we don't need any time to think about our response, King Nebuchadnezzar. We're not bowing down to your idol. The Lord can deliver us from whatever threats you make, and if He doesn't, we're still not bowing down. We must obey Him first. Daniel did the same thing. The king signed an order. No prayers made to anyone but the king. Daniel, he wasn't rude about it. He just went home and did what he normally does. He didn't get out his protest sign, you know, and be like, I'm praying right here in front of the palace. No, he went home and he did what he always did. And when he was busted for it, chilled with some lions for the night. In Acts chapter 4, verses 18 and 19, apostles are arrested for horrible things. They healed somebody. And in Acts 4, 18 and 19, Acts 4, 18, and then, and they called them, the, these are the religious leaders, they summoned them in, the apostles, and they commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. You can't talk about Jesus, you can't teach about Jesus ever again. Peter and John and the rest of the apostles drew their weapons and slaughtered them. Is that what it says? No. But neither did they say, okay. It says, but Peter and John answered and said unto them, whether it's right in the sight of the God to listen unto you more. It's not that it was wrong to listen to them, but to listen to you more than unto God, you decide. You know the answer to that. And the answer, of course, is we have to obey the Lord. Now, is there a cost to disobeying orders from a human authority figure? Yes. And God doesn't promise to deliver. I love the, the Hebrew young man who just said, listen, we know God can deliver us from this, and we believe He will. But even if He doesn't, we're still not bowing down. God doesn't always promise to deliver us. Daniel was preserved in the lion's den, but James was arrested and executed just a few chapters after Acts 4. The apostles were all martyred except for John. There is always a choice, though, always. These men could have looked at King Ahaziah and said, King, we love you. We're loyal to you. We'll do anything else you ask us, but we're not arresting this godly man because you don't want… you don't you don't perceive yourself correctly. You think you're a higher power than God. And it's not just that they did nothing. They chose to defy the Lord. You man of God, we know who you are, but it doesn't matter who you are. The orders from the king supersede who you are. So get down here. They choose to defy the Lord just as much as Ahaziah did. The captain may have called Elijah man of God, but he didn't believe that meant anything. And so Elijah's going to clarify things for him. Verse 10, 
And Elijah answered and said to the captain of fifty, If I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. And there came down fire from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Now, I think sometimes the reason we struggle with this, aside from not really getting the full picture, like I'm trying to paint for you tonight, the Bible says it in just a matter-of-fact way, and sometimes when horrible events are reported in a matter-of-fact way, it comes off as callous. The Bible's not trying to be callous, it's just getting to the point. And the point was, Elijah said, you said I was someone, but you, you've defied what that means. So, if I am who you say I am, then I'm going to let the Lord course correct the situation. And the Lord does. Some accuse Elijah here, and by proxy God, of course, of being harsh or unfair, even wrong, to do this to people. But is any of that true? Let's answer that question by asking a more pertinent question. What does God owe any person? Truthfully, what, what does He owe any of us? And in particular, when it comes to forgiveness or mercy or space to make mistakes, does God owe us a certain amount of time or chances to rebel against Him before He's allowed to act? What amount of time or number of chances are you comfortable with saying is fair? You see, when you really think about the details, if you have a problem with what God did here, if you really think about it, what you will realize is that you think God shouldn't do something like this at all, whether it's the first time or the 500th time. And if that's the case, that proves you have the same problem as King Ahaziah and these soldiers. I don't have to be a mass murderer to cause pain and loss to those around me. And I'm absolutely appalled when all I hear about when people read this chapter is nobody talks about the one dude sitting on a hill who's not trying to hurt anybody. Everybody talks about the mean God and the mean prophet. Nobody's talking about the person who's really being oppressed here, which is the prophet who's just sitting on top of a hill and minding his own business trying to do what God told him to do, who cares about someone enough to put his life on the line to say something he knows this guy doesn't want to hear. We somehow give all these powerful individuals a free pass. The truth is that if God gives me any second chances or any amount of time to change, it's a mercy and a grace I don't deserve because God owes me nothing. And if I really want justice, then that means I need to demand justice be taken out on myself immediately because that's what's just. I don't know the full story of these soldiers' lives. Perhaps they'd done heroic things in Israel. Perhaps they were corrupt and wicked. I don't know. All I do know is that they have Ahaziah's mindset, and God decides to deal with them here to protect his prophet. That is not harsh. That is not unfair. And that is not the wrong thing to do. It is just, and the truth is, it's preceded by a ton of mercy and grace because God hadn't done anything to judge them prior to this point. The moment they left the king with his orders and didn't defy the king, they were guilty. The moment they decided to go along with the king said, when what the king said was wrong, they were guilty. At any point in time, God could have judged them. 
He was giving them to the very last moment before they reached Elijah. The very last moment before they even said a word to Elijah to repent. But they did not. And so I think this chapter does serve as a wake-up call for all of us. Because it begs the question, do I perceive God's current mercy and grace? If, I'm, if I've got a wicked attitude or I've got wicked behavior, do I perceive His mercy and grace as a license to stay the way I am? Or do I respond to God's kindness to me by not doing something with repentance? Well, Ahaziah gets the news, and he's so stubborn that he persists in holding to his autonomy despite losing an entire band of soldiers. Look at verse 11. <clears throat> Again, he sent, also he sent unto him another captain of 50 with his 50. And he answered and said unto him, O man of God, thus says, has the king said, come down quickly. And Elijah answered and said unto them, if I be a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. This is not a repeat. There are, there are numerous differences here. Look at verse 11. Again, also he, the king, sent unto him Elijah, another captain of 50 with his 50. That's the only thing that's the same. Verse 11, and he answered. Who did he answer? Who's he responding to? Who's the only one he can respond to? The king gave him orders to go, and he answered, and then his answer is shown by his words to Elijah. That was his response when the king said, I've got orders for you. This is what you do. And he said, aye, aye, sir, I'm all in. There is always a choice. And he chooses here not just to repeat what the previous captain did, but to be more emphatic in his stance because he says to him, O man of God, thus as the king said, come down quickly. At once, I'm not going to tolerate any of your preaching or any of this fire nonsense. Get down here right now. This is a defiant rejection of the Lord's highest authority over his people. I mean, God had clearly just proved who's in charge the last time. It's not like individuals call down fire from the sky every Tuesday. It's Wednesday. We're okay. No, the Lord had proven over and over through years, decades of history. When Elijah was ministering to Ahab, he had proven over and over that Elijah's my prophet. And my people need to listen to his words. What else does God have to do to get somebody's attention? How many warning shots is God required to fire to be considered fair? Well, these guys are consumed, and Hezekiah still refuses to bend the knee. But to prove there's always a choice, the third captain he sends does defy his orders, and he bends the knee to the king of kings. Look at verse 13. And he, King Ahaziah, sent again a captain of the third 50 with his 50, and the third captain of 50 went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and besought him and said unto him, O man of God, I pray you, let my life and the life of these 50 your servants be precious in your sight. Behold, there came fire down from heaven and burn up the two captains of the former 50s with their 50s. Therefore, let my life now be precious in your sight. Does that resemble his orders at all? Oh, so we do have a choice. That's not his orders. In fact, the one order was, go get him. And does he ever ask Elijah to come down? 
Never. By the time this guy gets there, he is so convicted that he's even there that he falls down. The word there means to prostrate oneself. It means to lay yourself out on the ground. It's a position of respect, often in, uh, signifying your submission to the one you're bowing down to. I do not claim to have more authority than you. I'm submitting myself to you, and I besought, he says he besought him. It means to plead for mercy, compassion, or grace. Why would someone need mercy or compassion in this situation? Because what they were sent to do was wrong. And by the time he gets there, he goes, what the king sent us to do is wrong. We should not be here. We should not be here right now. So please be merciful to me and my men for coming here. Let our lives be precious. The word means of high value, costly. He doesn't even ask Elijah to come with him. He just simply asks Elijah to treat them as if they're more valuable than they've behaved. Give us grace. Give us what we haven't, haven't earned. Again, sometimes people read this chapter and they see God as callous and uncaring, that life isn't valuable to God. But when we look at the cross, we know just how valuable life is to God. That every life is valuable to Him. All we like sheep have gone astray. All of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord laid the iniquity of all of us on him. How many of us have gone astray? Every single one of us. How much iniquity is laid on Jesus? Every single one of us. Every single life has value. Every one of these 153 lives, well, 154 if you count the king, every one of them were valuable to God. So valuable to God that he came to earth and gave his own life to experience the judgment we had earned. You see, the good news is because of the cross, even the most rebellious person, if they'll humble themselves like these guys do, they will be received and raised up to the position of a joint heir with Jesus. Amen? This man and his men perceive themselves correctly as people in need of mercy. And because of a different self-perception, they humble themselves before the Lord, and they humble themselves before, themselves before His Word. And God responds by raising them up so they don't run afoul of anyone, including the wicked king who sent them. Look at verse 15. And the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Go down with this captain. He says, go down with him and be not afraid of him. That's the verse that should be sticking out to us in this chapter. How terrifying would it be to be Elijah right now? I get nervous when one dude's knocking on my door. Can you imagine if 50 soldiers, 50 police officers just showed up at your door with weapons? That'd be terrifying. Don't be afraid, Elijah. Go with this guy. This is, this is okay. I love what David Guzik said. It wasn't that God never wanted Elijah to go with King, to King Ahaziah. That, this had nothing to do with that. It was that Ahaziah, his captains, and their soldiers acted as if there was no God in Israel. That's the problem. Elijah would go at the command of God, not the commands of men who perceive themselves as superseding God. And so he says, don't be afraid of him. Again, I think it's easy to be sympathetic toward the soldiers who died in this chapter instead of Elijah, but he's the one being mistreated. Ahaziah and these other captains and soldiers are the ones who've been cruel and callous and wicked. So don't let the enemy distract you from what's really going on in this chapter. 
Don't flip it in the wrong direction. Well, we've got to finish this up. The end of verse 15 says, Elijah rose and he went down with him, this captain, unto the king. And they don't get in trouble for defying orders. Nothing happens to them. Verse 16, he said unto him, so this is now the Elijah speaking to the king. He gets there and he's before the king. And he says, thus says the Lord. For as much as you sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it not because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down off this bed on which you are gone up, but you shall surely die. And so he died according to the word of the Lord, which Elijah had spoken. And Jehoram reigned in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat. It gets confusing. There's actually two kings with the same name at the same time. So the king of Judah in the south and the king of, the king of Israel in the north is Jehoram at the same time. And the reason that this guy Jehoram becomes king in his place is because Ahaziah had no son to reign in his place. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, which he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? You want to find out more about this guy? Go read this other book, but I'm sharing this with you because you need to hear this. When Elijah gets with him, he has nothing new to say. He asks the same question. Is it because there's no God in Israel? You went to a, a, a false God? Because you did that, you're not going to recover. You're going to die. When I read this chapter, <laughs> if you're going to be angry at somebody, be it Ahaziah, not Elijah and not God. Because what a waste of time and what a waste of life. Sad story is, verse 17, after he hears the message, just says he died. No repentance, no seeking God for help, stubborn to the very end, refusing to relinquish his incorrect self-perception. And in the end, it cost him everything. Because this wasn't the end for Ahaziah. The Bible says, when we die, we go on living. Later on, many, many years later, when God was about to judge the southern kingdom, this is the northern kingdom, but later on when God was about to judge the southern kingdom of Judah, he sent another prophet to deal with his people's incorrect self-perception. And when he did so, he compared them to the people of Sodom. And so I want to leave you with this. Let's turn to Ezekiel 16. And I want to read verses 49 and 50. Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50. When he is critiquing the kingdom of Judah, he says, you're just like your sister, Sodom. And then he says this, verse 49, Ezekiel 16. Ezekiel 16, 49, he says, behold, pay attention, this is important. This was the iniquity of your sister, Sodom. What's listed first? Pride. Pride. Fullness of bread, life was good. Abundance of idleness was in her and in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. Oh, and they were haughty, and they committed abomination. The sexual sins were going on there before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. What was the problem the whole time? We're good. We have plenty of resources. We've got all the time in the world. Life, we don't need your way, God. We can govern ourselves. We can do this. We're fine. Until the Lord took him away. 
and then they weren't there. How do you perceive yourself? Are you more like Ahaziah and the first two companies of soldiers? Or are you more like the final set of soldiers? Because the difference matters. How we perceive ourselves, either as subjects to the Creator or autonomous, affects how we live. Let's be those who see ourselves as those who need mercy and trust in the fact that our Creator is a merciful God. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we are all in different spots tonight. Some of us more wealthy than others. Some of us have greater authority than others. Some of us have greater position in society than, than others. But the truth is, Lord, all of us, you call all of us to repent, to bend the knee. You, you tell us that all have sinned and fall short of your glory. So we all need you. We all need to see ourselves and embrace humility to recognize our need for you and your ways. So Lord, you know, tonight, if there's anyone who's been really just thinking, but I, I don't want this life for myself, I want this. And they're not yielding to you. Lord, would you help them to see that this is a warning shot? The scripture tonight's a warning shot? Help them to see how much you love them, Lord, and that you have a good plan for them. And Lord, that trusting you is the best way because you're a good creator, you're a good king. And then, Lord, for all of us who maybe we struggled because we're, we're trying to speak truth into lives and maybe we get a lot of pushback and maybe even threats, maybe even we've been abused or oppressed by others. Lord, help us not to be angry with them. Help us not to take matters into our own hands, but rather, Lord, help us to just keep being faithful to occupy till you come, to be faithful ambassadors till you call us home. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.